Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, welcome to Romaniacs here at the Podcast Live Politics Day at the Light in London's Euston, gateway to the north. <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky, I present the show, and when we booked the event, we thought Britain would uh, have left the EU by now, and we'd be talking to you through hot, hot tears. But the best laid plans can go awry, and Theresa May does not have the best laid plans. <laughs> Before we meet the panel, quick check, who listens to Romaniacs? Make some noise. That's good. Uh, who's new to the show? And... Make some noise if you only came to Podcast Live for Delling Pot and Chopper and you're here to shout, go back to Brussels, Ramonas. <laughs> no? Good. <laughs> There's one. I've got three of our regular panellists with me. That's not how we do things. Sorry. Making her live debut for Romaniacs, it's political commentator, regular on the BBC Sky and Bloomberg, specialist on disinformation, AI and deep fakes in digital media, here in person, so definitely not a bot. It's Nina Schick. I mean, as a woman in Brussels uh, half the time, how would you characterize the mood of our, our European friends right now? Are they, are they calling us a cab? <laughs> well, they are definitely preparing for the worst. And I think that as they see the kind of seismic paralysis gripping Westminster, they are fully expecting an extension request next week. And I think that Theresa May full well knows that she's going to have to make very clear what her next moves are on the 10th of April, so expect that to be happening next week. And they see the potential of um, a cataclysmic no-deal Brexit as a very real possibility. And that is simply because some of the political discourse here is so out of kilter with the reality vis-a-vis the EU and what the EU can offer and what it will offer in the negotiations. So... A really good example of that is this idea that somehow a new prime minister, whether that's a conservative prime minister or a labor prime minister, can go back and renegotiate the deal, which is, you know, the withdrawal agreement, which has been negotiated for the kind of past two and a half years. So that's closed. It's not going to happen. Throughout these talks, the EU has been very kind of process-driven, step by step, saying, you know, what's going to happen next? And in the UK, you know, there's always been a kind of catching up period to the political reality in Brussels. So I think the mood is quite grim uh, because they think there could be the worst outcome, which is not only the worst outcome for the UK, but also for the EU and in particular one of its uh, member states, Ireland, and that would be a no-deal Brexit. Also joining us is Alex Andreu, writer, actor, singer, cook, train sailor, world service regular, charmer, man of the world... (laughs) Romaniac's multiple threat, (laughs) and the Twitter legend known as Sturdy Alex. Hello, Alex. How are you? To to be fair, I am rubbish at all those things. (laughs) (laughs) But you you have a go. Um, Is there anything the current government can do uh, to resolve things, or do you think it will take a change of of prime minister to to unlock the deadlock, at least on, on our end, as Nina said, perhaps not on theirs? Uh, I don't think that's an either-or. I don't think anything the government can do can break the deadlock, and I don't think a change of prime minister can do that, because the deadlock was built into the question that we asked people. So, you know, when you promise people that they can have back absolute control of their borders, and also that the border in Ireland will be invisible, you know, no one other than a very talented magician can do much about it. So we just need a very talented magician as Prime Minister. (laughs) Good. Yes, or a hypnotist that could basically (laughs) convince people that we've left. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) Look into the eyes. It's a plan. (laughs) I like it. Also, uh, and completing the panel is Ros Taylor, Research Manager of the Trust and Technology Commission, uh, here in a personal capacity. Hello, Ros, how are you? Oh, I'm not too bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
We'll talk about the Brexit extension in more detail later. Are you feeling uh, at this moment hopeful, exhausted, or hope exhausted? Oh, God. Hope exhausted. <laughs> oh, look, I'm grateful for every day that we're still in the EU. Um, I, I, I'm glad about that. But it's just getting embarrassing now. I, I just feel embarrassed. It's just like, it's like we said we were going to leave, and we walked out, and, and then we came back and said, look, look, could I have the keys? And they said, uh, well, no, you can't have the keys. And then, so we went away again and we said, well, you know, can you leave the front door open? Because if you leave the front door open, I can come in and just kip in here whenever I like and, you know, use the single market like I want to. And they said no. And, and then we came back and said, well, you know, there's a back window. If you maybe lift out, open the crack, I could, I could creep in. And, 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 and it's just embarrassing. We want it all. And, and, and now we're likely to end up with absolutely nothing. Well, I think confirming the embarrassment is when you read pieces in the New York Times and other American outlets where they're just like, what's going wrong with Britain? And it's like, I mean, you're in America. <laughs> like, how, how dare you <laughs> laugh at us? But also, okay, fair play. We're, we're, having, a good, uh, we're having a good go at it. <laughs> uh, this afternoon, we're going back to the original classic Coke format of Romaniacs, where we talk about three news stories and then a bigger topic, unlike uh, podcasts in recent weeks, when we just tend to sit in the studio going through the news and going, what? <laughs> For an hour. Uh, so we're going to look at the Brexit delay and the prospect of European elections. We'll talk about Vote Leave withdrawing their appeal against the Electoral Commission's findings and what that says about the integrity of our democracy. And then we'll ask why the loudest Brexiters are so obsessed with the war when people who actually live through the war are uh, almost as pro-EU as millennials. And towards the end, we've got a wider topic. Uh, where do we go from here? <laughs> it's an easy one. The pub. We've got... <laughs> if Brexit is the symptom, not the cause, what can we do to rebuild Britain once this nightmare is over? And just for light relief, we're going to be asking the panel to name their own personal root cause of Brexit. Where did it all go wrong? Plus, we'll have audience questions at the end. We're going to try and allow sort of 10 minutes for that. So firstly, uh, the May delay. She's asked for our exit to be put back to June the 30th, which means the UK will participate in EU elections. Yeah. I know, right? That'd be, that'd be fun. Um, both France and Germany have said they want to see concrete changes uh, before agreeing to the delay. Um, what does this delay do to the political impetus for, for Brexit in the, uh, in the UK? And is there a prospect of an even longer extension that the, some of the EU leaders are talking about? This is the same delay that we asked for three weeks ago and were told no, by the way. So she went there, asked for a, a, an extension to the 30th of June, and 27 leaders of 27 sovereign countries basically talked about it through the night and came out and said, we can't do the 30th of June, it has to be either earlier or later because of the legal advice we've had. And three weeks later, they receive a letter from Theresa May saying, can we have an extension to the 30th of June? Um, it's and, a polite letter, though. So. No, I know, but we're, we're, we're heading into, uh, you know, John Grisham's The Rainmaker, where she gets this letter from the insurance company that says, on seven previous occasions, we have refused your claim. You must be stupid, stupid, stupid. <laughs> But her, her um, request for the extension was very much addressed at a domestic audience because, as we know, her cabinet is completely split. Uh, a lot of the kind of harder Brexiteers in her cabinet do not want the length of the extension. And as Alex already pointed out, at the last European summit, EU leaders made clear, look, you can leave on the 22nd of May if your deal passes by then. If it doesn't, then the extension or the new kind of cliff edge is the 7th of April by when you have to notify us whether or not you're going to take part in the European parliamentary elections. Because if you're to extend beyond that, you will have to take part in the European <coughs> parliamentary elections. So I think what's going to happen next week is that given that there's zero zilch, like next to nothing chance <laughs> of her deal passing by Wednesday, is that I think you are going to see the UK asking for a lengthy extension because the June the 30th date that Theresa May asked for, you know, for domestic reasons, she already knows is not possible from the EU's perspective. Why does she know that? Well, they spent hours discussing why that's not possible. So it's very, you know, politicking by Theresa May so she can come back to her cabinet and be like, I asked for June the 30th, but, you know, the, the EU insisted that it has to be a lengthier extension. And they also say we have to take part in the European parliamentary um, elections but you guys didn't pass my deal ahead of the deadline. So she's saving her own skin a bit, even though the political reality, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, 
vis-a-vis -vis the EU has always been very, very clear what the next steps are. And what's the extension that the EU would, would prefer? I think the EU will agree on an extension because if they do not agree on an extension next week, which I think is forthcoming, is that the only other option then would be no deal Brexit. And I don't or think... Or revoke. Or, or revoke. So, but for revoke, you would need the impetus in the UK, which I don't think exists no, at this I don't moment. Think so. um, and in the, in the case of a no deal, the EU has been consistently clear, even though there are different views and a lot of EU leaders are getting increasingly fed up of the UK, they don't want that on their doorstep. Why the hell should they be the ones who are responsible for a no deal Brexit when you know, the UK seems perfectly clear of taking us there um, entirely by itself? <laughs> And not to mention, one of their big considerations is Ireland, a member state of the 27. It, don't let it be lost to you that Angela Merkel was in Dublin just the other weekend. She went and spoke to people who told her stories of the kind of Irish border. Donald Tusk has been there. Repeatedly, the EU 27 have been behind Ireland. And if it came to a no-deal Brexit next week, Ireland is simply not ready, despite the fact that Brussels and London and Dublin haven't been forthcoming on what that means for the border. If it's a no-deal Brexit next week, there will be controls, either behind the border or on top of the border. There will be controls. It's not going to be seamless border. So they will not deny the extension request. And I think that the extension the EU will give will probably be about 9 to 12 months. Also, if um, the extension is long, uh, Theresa May can hang on as well. Because we know she's not going to go until she's delivered Brexit. And She'll uh, never go. Look, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we can look forward to lots more. Because you know so that the, the ERG hardcore actually seem quite enthusiastic mm. about a longer delay. They think, how, how would, that, how would well, that serve them? They think that they can get a really Brexity prime minister in. But let's face it, their efforts to dethrone uh, Theresa May have not really worked very well so far. Um, and, you know, we had today in the Sunday papers a lot of, oh, she's got to go, she's got to go, she's got to go. Yeah, but she's not going, is she? She really isn't. Um, you know, you, you're, you're going to have to drag her out um, uh, forcibly to get to go. And um, I, I think they would like to see someone else in charge. They think they would like to see Boris Johnson in charge. I don't actually think they would. My hunch is that Boris Johnson, once he got what he really wants ultimate power. Once he got what he really wants, he won't be that bothered about Brexit. He can be happy with a soft Brexit. He can bring that home and say, I delivered Brexit, blah, blah, blah. We can return to the real me. And, and Rhys Mogg will be furious, but um, that's, he, power is what Boris wants, and he doesn't care where, how he gets it. Um, so I, I think that uh, Boris may well disappoint, let's say, the ERG in the long term. Can they, can they sound a note of caution in that we said exactly the same thing about Trump, that once he's president, he will calm down and sort of... I didn't. He, <laughs> no, but, but there was an expectation yeah. that he was going to be more statesmanlike, <clears throat> and if anything, he's sort of spun off even worse. It has been bad. It could have been worse with Trump. It could have been, you know, starting wars. It could wars. be raining. <laughs> but let's not get into it yet. Well, you, um, I agree fundamentally, yeah. Talking of Mog, he floated the idea of, of sort of UKIP and kind of ERG-ish MEPs wrecking the EU from within if we have to stay. Um, you know, vetoing budgets and the Euro army that, that doesn't exist. Um, do you think that would be a real threat? Do you think that's something that the, that the EU would be worried about? A kind of new influx of people who are only there to cause... Uh, trouble. Not, of course, that they haven't had that for ages in the form of, you know, Nigel Farage and, and friends. Definitely. I think the EU, again, number one first thing to say is that don't kid yourselves. If the UK is staying beyond um, May the 22nd, which looks almost inevitable, Theresa May's deal doesn't get through, the UK will have to take part in the elections, for sure. The EU is not going to give up on that. Um, and I think they are very concerned about how that affects them institutionally. I think people here underestimate how important the European elections are to European member states. But they still think that having a destructive kind of UKP force inside the European Parliament is still less bad than a no-deal Brexit, right? And I think that perhaps even though European parliamentary elections are often battlegrounds for a more Eurosceptic, anti-EU uh, kind of electorate to come forth, not just in the UK, but traditionally across 
uh, all European countries. It might be interesting to see how that plays out in the UK in this context, because one thing that has happened since 2016 is that you have this kind of vociferous pro-EU movement that doesn't even exist in many other European <laughs> countries. So it'll be really interesting yeah. to see how that plays out. Well, because, it, I mean, it seems like it might be, uh, you know, sort of happy days for the SNP, Lib Dems, the independent group, the Greens, um, and sort of, you know, almost anyone who isn't kind of Labour Tories or UKIP. Can I just ask if there's anybody here who... Um, obviously, you're going to vote in the European elections. Um, is there anybody here who's, who's thinking about or is even sure that they're going to vote for a different party than what they would vote for in a general election? Quite a few. Yeah, that's, that's quite a few. And, and I wonder whether we think that, that, that it will actually um, be a kind of different kind of referendum on, 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 on... Not so much a referendum, but just a sort of seeing what the state of play is and how people feel about Europe. Because the people who might, for example, think, well, I'm, I'm bound to vote Labour because I'm in a Labour-Tory marginal. But on this occasion... I'm going to go for one of the pre-EU parties. Do you think that that will, that will give us a very interesting picture of actually where the electorate stands now, that you couldn't get any other way? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the nightmare scenario for both uh, dominant parties is to face a challenge from either <clears throat> side um, in a proportional representation scenario because politics is all about momentum, small m, momentum. Um, and, and actually, if there is a European election and people feel, well, I can vote for whoever I want, actually, I don't have to vote tactically, mm. and we end up in a situation which is not impossible that, you know, Conservatives and Labour end up third and fourth in that election, there, that's a lot of wind in the sails of other parties. And they definitely don't want that, which is why I think there's still an outside chance they will come to an arrangement and find some cobbled-together deal to pass the withdrawal agreement before the 22nd of May. I don't think that is beyond the pale, because they may not share many policy areas, but one thing they share absolutely is that they do not want to face the next election with Brexit still hanging as a question, as in you know, will it happen, will it not? And they certainly don't want to face a proportional representation election with that hanging as a question. Ross, do you think that Labour would have to... Because we're saying, obviously, when a general election comes, Labour will really have to clarify their position. Do you think they'd have to do it in European elections, that, that, would, that they'd really have to kind of make a choice? Which, of course, <laughs> you know, the party is divided mm -hmm. on that. Well, Labour's position, I mean, it was uh, hard Brexit. Now it's hard Brexit with customs union. Uh, maybe a little bit more single market than before in recent weeks. Uh, the big question, of course, is whether they uh, want a people's vote. And my, uh, I mean, the vast majority of the, the, the membership and the parliamentary party, uh, about half of them would be happy with a people's vote. But uh, the leadership would not. So will they have to say what kind of Brexit way they want? Well, they will be, um, yes, they, they will, but I don't think it will do them much good because, as you um, mentioned earlier, Alex, there will be uh, a big switch away from the two main parties because of proportional representation yes. and because of people being so hacked off with the way that both parties have handled it. So we will see them really suffer, I think, uh, then for the position that they have taken uh, of a still hard Brexit. Don't let anyone tell you that um, Labour is going for a soft Brexit now. Being in a customs union alone is, is still a hard Brexit. It's still leaving the single market. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, uh, the, the, of course, there won't be much detail in the election campaign about the EU and Europe because we're not very interested in that, as we know. We never, uh, during European parliamentary elections, actually hear very much about the European well, Parliament. Well, who wants to European elect does. an elected bureaucrat? Yeah, <laughs> precisely. So the focus will all be, I think, on the smaller parties, and, and um, they will be able to carry on spinning it out because... Everybody said they would have to come clean on whether they wanted a people's vote. Come on, you know. Every few days I hear someone inching a little closer to a people's vote. Oh, 
And, then, and it just, it never really happens. It, it need not happen because who can really put them on the spot? What is going to force, uh, what is going to force them onto the spot? Nothing. Um, <coughs> do, do you think the talks between Corbyn and May have, um, have sort of changed anything? Do you think anything uh, good is going to come out of that? Or is that, again, going through the motions, a sort of bit of political theatre? Um, because, basically, there's no way... <clears throat> that either leader can budge sufficiently without alienating a large portion of their party? I think just following Brexit for the past two years very closely makes us read these situations in a more cynical light. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the reality is, is that the outreach effort is much more about setting the narrative for what's to come. Um, I think that there might be a general election in the weeks to come, and I think that Theresa May does not want to be blamed as the one who, you know, didn't take Europe out of the European, didn't take the UK out of the European Union. So, you know, she'll be like, we reached out to Labour, we had these talks, Labour wouldn't budge. But in reality, I don't think she, as she has shown consistently throughout these past two years, she puts party unity, you know, almost above the national interest. I don't think she w wants to split her party by committing to a permanent customs union um, because almost certainly her cabinet was split. So I think this is very much, and we've, as Roz correctly just pointed out, all the difficulties in Labour's position as well. You know, both parties are totally obfuscating the issue. And I think this is really about setting the narrative for what's to come because no matter what happens next, one thing we all know is that this is not going away. It's not going away even if the withdrawal agreement passes. It's not going away if there's a no-deal Brexit. It's not going away if there's an extension, which is just a can-kicking exercise, essentially. The, the fundamental choices on the table remain the same. It's either Theresa May's deal with an extended uh, negotiation about the future relationship after that, no Brexit, um, or no deal Brexit. Yeah, and what, what's extraordinary is that both leaders are trying to do this balancing exercise coming from completely different points of view. So Corbyn is trying to do a, a hard Brexit that is as soft as possible not to piss off his Remainer voters. And Theresa May is trying to do a, a, a soft Brexit that is as hard as possible in order to not alienate her Leave voters. And, you know, it's, it's like a Chinese puzzle box. You, those finger traps, they've both got their fingers in it, basically, and now they don't know how to get out of it. But, it, I mean, it's, a, it's extraordinary that, in terms of how I feel about it, I feel much safer when it's Keir Starmer and David Liddington in the room mm -hmm. than when it's Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May. <laughs> what does that say? <laughs> the incredible irony <laughs> is that the Labour and Conservative positions are not actually, at least the Labour um, leadership position, is not actually that far off the Conservative uh, leadership position. Yeah. And uh, what they, when they are having their talks, you know, it came up today that Theresa May tried to persuade Jeremy Corbyn that the backstop was just really a customs union uh, of, of a sort. I mean, <laughs> which she has spent a year denying, which, basically. But you know what, what they're ultimately uh, recommending to each other is not that distant. I think if they, didn't, spectrum if they didn't have of, any know, members, if they didn't have or any voters or MPs. <laughs> They'd probably be able to thrash something out. Exactly, yeah. 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 And that's a terrible... It makes me despair, but that is a terrible <laughs> one. Um, be before we move on, I just want to say, how many people here are, uh, would be excited about a general election? Would think that that would help? <laughs> no, that's just halved the amount. There's one there. gentleman just out of your uh, peripheral oh, vision. There we go. Um, so, yeah, maybe not... Uh, <laughs> Wouldn't slice the Gordian knot. But can, I, can I say something that I've said before? I think people don't hate elections. I think they hate the campaigns that precede them. If you said to people, we're going to say nothing about it, there's going to be a vote in two weeks' time, we're going to say nothing about it, you know what it's all about by now, just go and vote. I think people would cheer. <laughs> Well, we're going to have a quick break uh, and talk about the real causes of Brexit, uh, not inequality or broken politics or migration and so on. We mean uh, popular culture and events that shape people's minds in ways they don't realise. Uh, what really set us on this path? 
Perhaps it was the popular sitcom Mind Your Language, or changing the name of Marathon Bars to Snickers, or Fat Les's number two hit single Vindaloo, featuring Keith Allen. Could be any or all of those things. Um, we're asking our panel for their own patient zero of the Brexit outbreak. Uh, Ros, let's start with you. It's, it's a weird one, and you're bound to disagree, I think. Deliveroo. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, Deliveroo... At least they deliver what they promise. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing about Deliveroo is it's a, it's a new, it's a, it was a fairly new concept when it came along in 2013, I'd point out. So just in time to sort of start changing our, our thinking. But what it, what it essentially is, is um, take out, well, you know, local restaurants, or not so local if it's a dark kitchen, but, you know, restaurants delivering food to you. And the people delivering those food are poorly paid, probably earning less than minimum wage, often Eastern Europeans. And the food they're delivering to you is usually Thai or Chinese or Indian. And it, it's a particular mindset about the British that says, oh, yeah, what I really want, what would really improve my life would be sitting at home, maybe on Twitter, maybe staring at the TV, and, and ordering in some food that's from the Far East or the, or the Middle East and, and, and having someone from Eastern Europe or lowly paid, you know, someone quite young, deliver it to me. And it's kind of... It's, it's, so, it's so isolating <laughs> and it's so arrogant. It's so much this kind of, oh, the world will come to us. Uh, the world will come to me, and its fantastic cuisine will come to me. Well, you know, the local Indian, but, you know, its fantastic cuisine will come to me, and I don't need to do anything. I can just sit here, and then I can hand over, you know, 20 quid, and then, or not hand over because it's prepaid, and, and maybe give the delivery guy a couple of quid if, he's, if, if I'm in a good mood, or maybe not. And um, it's, that, it's, that, it's a very British thing that the world will come to me, and it will serve me, and to hell with everything else. I just want to be on my own, and I want to be insular, and I want to be left alone to do my stuff in my house. And to me, that's very Brexity. <laughs> <laughs> Cook up your own damn food, is what you're saying. Um, Alex, quickly, what would, what would yours be? Uh, mine would be the fall of the Berlin Wall. I think while the whole of Europe... I don't think that was as important so as to live through. I think, I think while the whole of Europe celebrated uh, that moment, uh, Britain thought, how dare you move on from our greatest uh, sort of hour? Um, I mean, I don't want to say much more because we talk about their obsession yeah, yeah. with the war later, but the, <clears throat> there is a sense that, uh, you know, if you look at the EU27 as one side and Britain as the other, they went into this with very different objectives and stakes. Um, because their experience of the defining events of the 20th century has been very, very different. Thanks, Alex. Uh, back to the present. Uh, on Friday, March 29th, under cover of Brexit Betrayal Day, Vote Leave finally dropped its appeal against the Electoral Commission's findings that it broke campaign finance rules. <laughs> uh, the campaign said a statement, sadly, we do not have the financial resources to carry forward this appeal. Yet the Electoral Commission has said it would not be in the public interest to investigate further, even if there was evidence of an offence. It's extraordinary. Uh, Ros, this is one of your specialisms. How can it not be in the public interest to investigate uh, law-breaking? Well, it is in the public interest, but this revelation came in a BBC programme, and basically, Electoral Commission said uh, there wasn't enough evidence that the BBC put forward. Uh, and uh, we, we haven't... Oh, well, there wasn't enough evidence. And basically, the Electoral Commission have had their work cut out the last, um, the last few years. They've uh, done quite a lot. They've had to investigate quite a lot, and they simply haven't got the bandwidth to do any more. Because going into this kind of detail would be following up paper trails, following up financial trails, which actually the Electoral Commission and the Information Commissioner's Office and all these other, you know organisations that you've vaguely heard of don't have the authority to do under British law and so they don't have uh, the ability to chase up where money is coming from um, and to follow up all the offshore trusts it may have been channelled through it's not something they so have. So it's just too hard, basically. Yeah, it's too hard, but they haven't got the powers. But I mean, so uh, it's, it's, that, that was their excuse. <laughs> but that is kind of 
their job, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But kind of. They're a fairly I mean, under-resourced operation, given, <laughs> given what they've had to try and deal with in the last few years. Uh, I, I, I feel sorry, a bit sorry for them, actually. I mean, in normal, in normal times, yeah, they would have been all over it. But these, these are not normal times. Um, and, Alice, the, the, leave, the Vote Leave campaign was... Um, and obviously, the leave.eu, Aaron Banks' operation has. And they've already been fined and yeah. referred to the oh, National Crime Agency. But Vote Leave was headed by uh, Michael Govan and Boris Johnson. Is any of this going to. Well, they were the sort of public leaders. They were the public leaders. That's it. They weren't, run, yeah, they weren't running it. But um, will any of this stick to them? You know, particularly since some of the, a couple of. Well, you know, those two, I think, are interested in becoming Prime Minister. Um, would would I, that. Would that dog them at all? I don't know. I mean, one of, the, one of the features of the current situation is that the news cycle moves on so quickly that events that would have been front-page news for months are forgotten the next day. I just... I find it unbelievable that, that we have a group of people who style themselves as the defenders of democracy in this country who don't want the Electoral Commission to investigate anything. They don't want a general election... They don't want a, a European parliamentary election. They definitely don't want another public vote. And I find that a bit weird. You know, what, what sort of democracy is it you like? One day. They like Just one the, day's yeah. worth of democracy. And they go, I don't, who needs any more than yeah. that? Which is basically where the argument has come, come down to. No one is arguing that Brexit is a good thing anymore, that I can see. Everyone is... is Maybe quibbling about the quantum of damage, but the damage itself is now commonly accepted. Um, everyone is just arguing on this point that people voted, so we have to do it. Nina, on this question um, of, of legal skullduggery, um, are we just going to have to accept that this very, very important decision, um, you know, that, that, that there's this kind of like legal stink around it? But there's really nothing we can do. It's not going to be thoroughly investigated. It certainly is not going to, on that sort of emotional, political level, even, you know, even Remainers aren't really arguing uh, that you can just kind of, like, reverse the referendum, that you're just going to, there's going to be some kind of document or taped conversation that comes out, which basically means, oh, we don't have to do this at all now. So we're just going to have to accept that whatever happened, there's really nothing we can do about it. Yeah, I mean, do I think it is the right thing to happen? No, but do I think politically that is what is going to happen, that nothing will happen and, you know, the result of the referendum, it can't, it can't be overturned for any kind of legalistic reason? Yes. And this, I mean, what Alex and Raz were just talking about and what we witnessed in 2016 with both the EU referendum and the election of Donald Trump is the beginning of a much different type of of politics and political campaigning in the digital era. I mean, you might have seen the stories from last week where it showed that, you know, loads of dark money or money from unknown sources was being used to funnel um, millions of voters into pushing their MPs for a no-deal Brexit, you know, the, the hardest Brexit possible. That just shows you how much this debate, well, not the hardest Brexit possible, the cataclysmic option, right? That two years ago, nobody was talking about as even an option or a desirable outcome. You know, so many MPs, I think up to 14 cabinet ministers indicated that they either are in favor of a no-deal Brexit or a short extension if the short extension has to be longer than June the 30th and they would favor a no-deal Brexit. So I think it's a new type of politics that we've entered um, and the public kind of bodies that are meant to deal with this, like the Electoral Commission, are simply not fit for purpose. They don't have the resources, they don't have the expertise, and they just don't know what to do. Um, and the bigger political context is that this has become such an emotive issue that I don't see any kind of truth and reconciliation and coming together, no matter what happens. I think everyone is going to be pissed off which is ultimately <laughs> the most harmful outcome for democracy and democratic discourse in this Andrea, country. Andrea Leadsom was on Mar this morning, and she was asked about that, and her response was, you know, why do you, why do you support a, a no-deal cliff-edge thing? And she went, well, because I don't think it'll be nearly as grim as people say. 
And I just thought, oh, you should have put that on the bus. You know, <laughs> not as grim as everyone thinks. You have gotten about 10%. How we've gone, yeah. how we've gone from promising this, this paradise of, of rivers of honey and virgins to not nearly as grim as everyone thinks, I don't know. But there we are. Everything is project fear, project fear, project fear, right up until the millisecond where it becomes what people voted for. Yeah. And, and to add to that, to add to the no deal scenario, I mean, you know, so often throughout this process, we're like, oh, it's so unpredictable. We don't know what's going to happen next. But just time to stamp this for posterity. If it does come to a no deal Brexit, the first thing the UK is going to have to do is to go back to the EU to <laughs> negotiate. This time in an even weaker position than it's been in the past two years. What do you think the EU is going to say to open those talks? Let's talk about the backstop. Let's talk about the money. Let's talk about citizens' rights. So you're all the way back at square one, except this time it's even worse. Except you're on fire. Exactly. <laughs> you're on fire and back to square yeah. one. Um, and quickly, for the last one, you may notice that Brexiters are very keen on the Second World War, which we won. Um, anthropomorphized pork pie Marc Francois can't read a letter from a German Airbus CEO in case it dishonors his father who fought in the war. No deal food shortage is going to be fine because we survived the war, even though quite famously many did not. Um, However, research on Ross's LSE Brexit blog shows that people who actually experience the Second World War are uh, as pro-EU as millennials, and it's the baby boomers who are most negative. Um, Ros, can you tell us uh, quickly a little bit about, about the research, and was this something that um, just confirmed what we, we kind of thought after the referendum? Um, a little bit. I mean, it, it basically showed us that the over-75s and increasingly <coughs> over-80-year-olds 80, are... Uh, more pro-EU. But the interesting thing is it's not just people who've experienced the war, I think, because um, the only people who've experienced the war now are those people, over 75s <coughs> and 80-year-olds. I think there was an older generation again who uh, did experience the war in their 30s and in their 40s and in their 50s who were... Uh, who, who displayed many of the same prejudices. And what this... What this um, research showed you, actually, is that it's the experiences you have in your formative years that have an impact on you. So it, it, it's, only, it's only things that you experience in your teens and your 20s that feed through into, in, in, into the future and in your future views, which is a bit disconcerting, really, because it worries, worries me a bit, because it means, you know, I, I'm going to be obsessed with 9-11 all my life. <laughs> and, and, and me, Britpop. Because <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I interviewed um, uh, Michael Hestein last week, and he was saying, like, yeah, exactly this sort of. He remembers mm. being in his kitchen in Swansea and hearing mm. Neville Chamberlain announce the real war, and this was like mm. for him the whole large part of his remaining uh, mm. passion is is based on that experience. Yeah. But obviously, um, not so much with with little Marc Francois. Um, why does is there a kind of um, a lust for sort of, you know, drama and, you know, very well, alone. And is, I, does it sort of satisfy I, this kind of emotional need for us to both be sort of heroic and powerful, but also the underdogs fighting against an evil empire? Is it this kind of, like, I think it's an identity. I think it's an identity issue. So, someone, uh, Neil Harris, I think it was, uh, very smartly wrote in the Irish Times some time ago, that the British were the only country in Europe to come out of the, the two wars feeling better about itself than it did before. And I think that's a really key thing to understand, you know. They were really struggling having lost their empire status, mm. and then suddenly there was this victory that built them up again. They were never occupied, so, you know, the effects were not... I mean, Greece lost 10% of its population... 10% of its population. Um, and so when, when people went into the European project, like I said, the stakes were just really different from countries that had been occupied and had suffered those effects and had come out feeling really that they must never let this happen again. And I think that point, the broader point, the geopolitical point, was lost in the referendum campaign completely. Mm. You know, no one really made that argument. And if they did... 
they were mocked, uh, you know, as Project Fear, where they suggested there's going to be another world war. Um, and, well, there might be, or there might not they, be, they but, that's not, but that's, not, that's not the point. The point was that we had observed this cycle in Europe where the far right rose every few decades. And the last time, this had a really fucking catastrophic effect. And the people who experienced that got together and came up with this structure to guard against it happening again. And the first time it happens again, our reaction is to dismantle that structure. That's madness. Um, Nina, you're, you're half German. Do you find this just, do you find it bizarre, excruciating? Um, like, what do, you make, what do you make of this kind of aspect of the British psyche? I think that in many regards, you know, even Germany never got over the war, right? Except that they see it in a completely different light. They had to come to terms with what had happened in the country in the Second World War, and therefore the European Union is so important to Germans as a peace project. It's not simply an economic, you know, trading relationship, which is why this argument that was so often made by leading Brexiteers that the German car manufacturers would be, you know, delivering us and banging down Merkel's door to make sure that we had a trade agreement is, is nonsense. You know, it's deeply emotive. And interestingly, in 1975, when the original referendum was held about whether or not the UK should join the ECC, the um, opinion polls were... 57% against and in the event 67% for and the people who wanted the UK to join made a very powerful and emotive argument based on the war mm. so that argument has been made in the UK it just wasn't made in 2016 and I think it's certainly true that for some of the more kind of rabid Brexiteers who have now become mainstream they have an obsession with Nazism Never forget that Margaret, I mean, Margaret Thatcher used to walk around with maps of German kind of ex Nazi expansionism in her handbag. So they never really got over this fear of, you know, Germany as a potential usurper or conqueror, which is why in the 80s, you know, the Bruges group and so on, which then became to, um, their kind of thinking became central to Brexit thought in later decades. They often talked about the Euro and the European Union as a way of Germany taking over the rest of Europe again. And that's often been said, for example, in the context of, of, of the Greek crisis. And uh, I do think there is a certain obsession with the Second World War. We see it a lot. And I think for Germans, it's in very baffling because they see it from exactly the opposite side. And um, we've got... Sorry. Uh, sorry, we're going to have 30 seconds to fix Britain. <laughs> um, so, Nina, before we move, could, could we just have your, your, um, your where-did-it-all-go-wrong moment? Um, I think... Uh, so, I actually uh, was working with David Cameron in 2013, uh, up to 2016, so, like, the whole Bloomberg speech and the renegotiation moment. I think it all went very, very wrong when what was essentially an issue of party management was allowed to become um, a national issue. Let's not forget that before 2016... The public was very concerned about things like housing, the NHS, education, but Europe was like down in the list of priority. Immigration was one. But what the Leave campaigners did very, very successfully is take all the woes that people had, all the concerns about society, and make leaving the European Union the silver bullet solution to all of that. And I think that now the political identity is so entrenched Remainer or Lever. People identify much more with either one of those labels than Tory <laughs> or Labour. Uh, Remainer or Lever. And I think that that's when it all started to go wrong, when this became a hugely poignant identity moment over the past two years. And I yeah. don't see now how people move beyond that. Well, fortunately, we know this, and we're going to share this knowledge with everyone, because we're going to fix Britain in five minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah. well, no, wait, what's yours? What's your moment? Well, my you moment's going to... My moment... Well, my moment is, um, I think, when Gordon Brown apologising for calling uh, Rochdale pensioner Julie Duffy a, a bigoted woman in 2010. I think, on reflection, she, she, she was a woman. <laughs> and and all, also bigoted. Um, and I think... 
I think it revealed this kind of neurotic fear of, of criticizing, you know, xenophobia, nationalism, it, because that would read as being out of touch with the real Britain. And it's a kind of populist cringe, and I think it particularly doesn't work for, for Labour, who get led into sort of anti-immigration policies, some commemorated on mugs, uh, <laughs> blue Labour sort of nativism, legs it, and chasing after voters who really don't agree with the party generally anyway, but they yeah. sort of fetishise them as, as, as their sort of core, even though, of course, we've seen in the past, core Labour voters often aren't and, and drift away for other reasons. Um, and the legitimate concerns of, of Leave voters, legitimate concerns, matter at the expense of the legitimate concerns of people at the receiving end of bigotry or just people who have a different vision of Britain. Um, we always fancy the person that doesn't want us. We do. <laughs> we can talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this myth you can't talk about immigration when, in fact, you can't talk... It's more that you can't talk positively about immigration um, without being out of touch with the, with the heart of England. And, and this populist cringe affects politicians, especially Labour ones, it means that they're scared to say things that sort of needed to be said in those years. Yeah. And I think we sort of, in some ways, cringed our way into Brexit. So that would be mine. It's a good one. Also, mind your language. Um, so, yeah, so I'm just going to ask each of you to kind of... To, to, I'm going to throw each of you an area of British life that you have to fix. Um, Ros, in terms of kind of... Uh, you know, sort of healing the divide, perhaps in sort of, uh, by, by looking at, you know, the policy, kind of policy areas that we just haven't been devoting any time to recently. Things like education, health, housing, yeah. all that stuff. Um, what, would you want to, what would you want to see that you think would address some of those kind of, um, those sort of root causes of the disaffection, the kind of people who are not hardcore Eurosceptics, but they were kind of, they just wanted to give us up yours to Westminster and to London. What I, don't do think, think? I don't think you are going to appease those people. Um, I think you have to stop making policy that is aimed at the elderly. Um, and I think the, the reaction to Theresa May's attempt to reform social policy <clears throat> and uh, make people pay for elderly care, pay a little bit more out of, their, um, out of the value of their homes, uh, was a sign of just how incapable we are in this country of doing any policy that doesn't automatically favour the elderly. Now, obviously, there are many elderly people who live in poverty, and we, we know that, but the big pressing problems in this country, climate change, housing, the NHS for everyone, um, education, you have to look at future generations, and you have to give something people a policy that they can believe in as a, as a positive step towards the future. Mm. And that's why I have, think you have to stop skewing elderly, even though it may be tempting from an electoral point of view because older people tend to vote. We're going to see next week uh, Extinction Rebellion. They're going to start sitting down in places in central London and blocking traffic. Climate change is something that we are basically, with the exception of Sadiq Khan a bit, completely ignoring in this country. Uh, and it's one of the things that has fallen foul of Brexit. It's something that young people care about immensely, quite a lot. And we have to start listening to what young people care about in terms of policy, and not just late middle-aged and elderly people. Because, because otherwise you just did a... <laughs> you, you, you're not... You're going to create massive disaffection among young people, as well as being pissed off among the old as well. Yeah. And you're going to just end up making everybody unhappy. So I think we have to skew young in terms of our priorities. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Um, Alex, I'm going to give you uh, party politics. Do you, oh, okay. do you think that Labour and the Conservatives will survive in their current form without further splits and... The independent group, in some ways, obviously trying to be a sort of, you know, a fresh kind of pro-European alternative. However, they also seem, uh, you know, to have a lot of ideas that, you know, one of you know, sort of centrist yeah, ideas yeah. that we'd say have sort of failed. So is that, that the second question is, 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 do they have an answer? Be because I think the first thing you have to address is not a matter of policy, it's a matter of process. I think Britain is really shit at doing consensus anything you know, and, and that is partly why it's never really taken up fully its chair 
at the European table because it sees everything as a sort of contest in which, you know, if, if another nation gets what they want, it means we lose. And that, I think, is also part of the reason why the European leaders look at us with such astonishment, you know. I mean, Germany is a, is a country that has had a, a, a Grosse Coalition for 15 years now, essentially a, a, a national unity government for the last decade and a half. And we can't sit in a room and have a cup of tea with each other without hurling abuse. So it's that adversarial style that needs to go, and we have to reach out to each other and have a much more consensus-driven adult politics. And I think the way you might start that is from modernizing the House of Commons. I cannot emphasize enough what a nasty atmosphere, this idea of having the benches opposite each other, screaming at each other, the idea that in order to vote you have to get up and go to a room with your friend or your enemy instead of having electronic voting. I think if you changed that, you would find that the atmosphere changed instantly for the better. Okay. Thank you. Um, and Nina, I want to ask you about sort of democracy. That if, if we do avert Brexit, either by revoking it or through a people's vote, I mean, a, a significant minority of people in Britain will feel cheated, including people who, um, hadn't, as we're often told, had never voted before. Um, how do you convince them to participate again? How do you kind of, um, you know, make sure they don't sort of lose their faith in democracy? Does that require, you know, certain reforms? Does it require kind of new mechanisms of democratic engagement? I think one of the fundamental things you need for a democracy to function properly is some kind of idea of what is an objective reality. And <laughs> in the past two years, we've slipped so far from kind of facts and reason into cognitive dissonance chambers. And I have to be said, in particular when I'm talking about the Brexit divide, that's true on both sides of the debate. Um, and for a democracy to survive, you need to be able to call out the facts. And if people, ministers, <laughs> cabinet ministers, insist on perpetrating myths to fulfill you know, their political ambitions, I don't see how this is ever going to be good for any democracy. If democracy, you cannot have facts and compromise, some kind of meeting room in the middle, then I think democracy is doomed to fail, especially because now we're in a digital era where people's cognitive bi biases um, can be amplified and all the information you receive all the time. And I'm not hopeful about the future of democracy in this country if some politicians don't, aren't able to stand up and honestly tell the public how it is pretty soon. And looking at the state of the two parties right now, I can't say I'm too confident about that. So it's kind of depressing. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I, I honestly think it might get worse before it gets better. And therefore, I think as kind of educated people in this room, it comes upon actually all of us to insist that our politics isn't just um, cognitive dissonance chambers and people's emotive, playing on people's worst emotions. I think that, that I'm not sure if you saw that clip of Krishna and Guru Murthy interviewing John Redwood, and he was saying that, John Redwood was saying, well, there's a clear majority for no deal in the country. Yeah. Yeah. And Krishna would not let it go. He was going, it's not true, it's yeah. not true. And then at the end, when it, John, you know, we said, goodbye, John Redwood, it's not true. <laughs> um, and it was a really bracing moment. I've seen Mehdi Hassan do it with, uh, I can't remember, American politician. Yeah. And again, yeah. that went viral. And just the idea that without having a, 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 you know, a bias towards a particular position, just having a bias towards not letting people lie... Yeah. That seems encouraging, and that seems somewhere that, that the media seems to be very slow, as if it's like it's terribly rude to point out when well, somebody's lying. I mean, some of the media is actively feeding it. Yeah, the, yeah. the reason there was a wave of people going on channels and saying, a majority now supports no deal, even though it's not true, is because basically the Daily Mail said it, because it commissioned this poll from YouGov and splashed a headline that majority now 
um, support no deal. But you have to read through in order to find out that they only support no deal if you exclude London, Scotland, Northern Ireland, stand on a cliff at sunset, you know, <laughs> tilt your head sideways yeah. and squint. But people went out armed with that, and actually, I've only heard it challenged two or three times. Yeah. And, and never... And never so I wouldn't be surprised if that sunk in now. But never forget how complicated Brexit is. It is, you know, it takes a genius journalist to understand everything about Brexit at the moment. There's trade. Who, who, who even knew what the customs union was before we, we voted leave? Who even cares? Everybody even here, care? I bet it, you. The amount of stuff, the parliamentary votes for the last couple of weeks, I, the amendments, my God, my, they just make my brain explode. I can't keep up with it. And um, it's... it's it's incredibly difficult to be on top of everything Brexit-related. It's an incredibly difficult job, and well, you're asking a lot of journalists well, to Unfortunately, we are on top of all of it. <laughs> um, and although we're, we are running short of time, um, it would be great to take a couple of questions uh, from, the, from the floor. Oh, I'm in charge this time, aren't I? Uh, yeah, this idea here. Oh, sorry, sorry could... I, I, it was the lady before. That's fine. Did you okay. She can go next. She can go next. No, that's really mean now. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Given that you asked, I think the moment it all went wrong was when Ed Miliband stood against David Miliband. But my question is, um, if we do come out, given what we've learned in the last few years, what do you think the implications are going to be for the rest of Europe? Uh, Nina, do you want to tell? Yeah, um, so I think it's always been clear that this is a lose-lose, not only for Britain, but also for the rest of the EU. So it was always a question, in my view, of damage limitation, right? Let's not forget, for the rest of the European Union, you're losing one of the biggest foreign and military defense powers. You're losing a, UN a permanent council a member of the UN uh, Security Council. So it's just... If you look at the bigger picture, it's a weakening of the Western liberal alliance, right? That's already a rift which is so large between the U.S. and Europe. And now that the U.K. is leaving the European Union, um, it's going to make that, that, that kind of decline of the Western kind of liberal dominance go precipitate faster, especially if you look at the bigger geopolitical picture, what's happening with Russia, what's happening with China. And I think this is actually the biggest danger of Brexit. We spend so long navel-gazing and fighting our actual closest allies and partners that we lose track of the bigger challenges that are to come, and, and they will be coming. Cool. <laughs> Could you get that there? Thanks. Thanks. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for the, for the podcast in general. I never know if I feel better because I'm not alone, or worse because everything's so grim. Better. <laughs> and I have a question about... I'm so confused by customs unions, so maybe you understand it. There's the A customs union and the, the customs union, and I understand the difference between those two, and I, don't, I can't keep track anymore of where that leaves free movement and whether any of them has free movement in. And on a bigger scale... Why does Theresa May and, and why does Jeremy Corbyn hate free movement so much? And is that ever going to go away? Um, Labour MP Mary Creer uh, put it very, very well uh, the other day when she said that if we go for customs union with no element of the single market, you end up in a situation where a tin of beans has more rights than a person. Uh, because, you know, customs union is all about the movement of goods. Um, it, it has nothing. It's about keeping tariffs down, basically. It's about putting a ring around Europe that says, this is the tariff barrier, but it doesn't apply between us. And so it has nothing to do with free movement of people at all. So why, why is there such opposition to free, free movement from um, the leaderships? I don't know. Probably because of uppity Europeans like me, I suspect. Is it just you? Is it just your freedom of movement? I think it's probably just me, yeah. yeah. I think if I went, everyone would be cool about but he's, it. Yeah. He's gone now and he can't get back. It's fine. No, I mean, it's a, it's a cultural dysphoria. And it's not, you know... And I don't... The, 
The environment is such of this podcast that I end up complaining about a lot of stuff, but I actually love this country. I chose this country as my home. Um, you know, it's a positive commitment on my part. Um, but I do think, and, and I don't think it's a coincidence that this is an English problem rather than a British problem, that there is an identity crisis and that England does tend to define, it's gone into this spiral where it defines itself with what it's in opposition to. And so we risk becoming Millwall, you know, we risk be becoming everybody hates us and we don't care, and that being our identity. Do we have one more? Or no. oh. So I'm, I'm very sorry, it's a, it's a hard curfew. Uh, unlike March 29th, there is no extension. <laughs> um, Can we have until the 30th so of June? We, we can't even, not even if we agree to European elections. Um, thank you very much for coming. Thank you.